You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. If you were here last week, you might recall that we began a new sermon series on Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We talked about how this letter is so many different things to so many different people when it comes to the Christian faith and what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But one of the reasons it is a text and a letter that has carried for so long is because in so many ways Paul gets to the heart of the matter in this letter. He gets right down into the nitty gritty of what it means to carry with us the life and saving death of Jesus Christ. So we began last week by talking about this term Paul uses, the power of the gospel. How the gospel is not just this interesting thought experiment, but this thing that changes everything. Everything about our lives and everything about our world. Today we turn to a practical application, if you will, where Paul takes that notion of the gospel's power and describes for us how one of the ways it changes us is by taking our suffering and turning it into something else entirely. So let us listen now for a word from God as we turn back to Paul's letter to the church in Rome, beginning with the first verse of the fifth chapter. Paul writes to the church saying, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Paul continues, for while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, Paul says, we even boast in God through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Good and gracious God, send your spirit that it might dwell with us no matter where it is we find ourselves this day. That your spirit would meet us there in the depths of our despair or at the mountaintop of our highest hopes.
Oh God, send your spirit indeed to move upon our hearts that the meditations of all of our hearts gathered here and the words of my mouth would be glorifying to you. For you and you alone, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, I think more than any two people, Evan and Megan have taught me the most about the character of Christian hope. I met Evan when he was 19, 20 years old. He was more or less, even at that young age, running this uh, small chain of local coffee shops. If you were here last week, you might begin to detect a pattern that the Dyer family and caffeine tend to go hand in hand. Literally at that time, uh, our family and our family budget, we had this coffee shop as an actual line in our monthly budget. We were spending so much money there. So all that to say, Evan and I started to get to know one another pretty well. I got to watch as Evan, a few years later, married his high school sweetheart, Megan. And a few years after that, Evan and Megan welcomed their first child into the world, and more or less, they set off on a life full of hope and joy and promise that you would expect out of any newlywed 20-somethings. I was spending so much time there that over time, Evan and I started to become more than just coffee shop manager customer. We became friends, started to have conversations about matters of faith and life. Megan and Evan would start to come over to Aaron and my house for dinner every once in a while, and we'd start to go to their house, right? We began even to see them in church on Sunday mornings, periodically. They grew up in a very different tradition of the Christian faith, but they got curious, and I'd be surprised some Sunday mornings looking out there, and I'd see their faces, and sometimes even they'd invite some other friends to come with them. It was a Sunday, the Sunday after Easter, specifically five years ago. So the second Sunday in the Easter season, the season when we celebrate Christ's resurrection and we lean into the light and promise and hope of, of that amazing Easter morning. It was the second Sunday of Easter when I saw Evan and Megan coming up at the rear of the line after worship. Y'all ever do that thing where when you really want to say something to the preacher, you jockey for that last position, right? <laughs> that was Evan and Megan that day. But as soon as I saw their faces, I knew that all was not well. As it turns out, a few days earlier, Evan, then 25 years old, had received a devastating diagnosis of this aggressive and advanced illness. Their worlds had been turned upside down, right? And like anyone who has ever had the rug pulled out from underneath them, whether because of an unexpected diagnosis or because of a wildfire out of control or because of a powerful storm, a devastating storm, or because of a broken heart, Evan and Megan, from that point forward, all the way through today now, some five years later, have been living at the self-described edge of a cliff, at the end of a rope. But you know, what's most amazing to me about them is that even after this endless parade of doctor's appointments that they have endured, 
even after this now, I imagine, mountain of medical bills that adorn their dining room table, even after all of the restless nights turning over in bed, unable to ever actually go to sleep, even after all of that, Evan and Megan have held on to this, I don't know, rugged, this restless faith. I think if they were here and we asked them what it is that has kept their feet grounded, what it is that's kept them from falling over the edge of that cliff, I think if we asked them, what's that last strand that you have been holding on to all these years? I think if we asked them that question, the answer they would give us is hope. It's hope. That's what we've been holding on to. You know, it's amazing to me in the Bible how it doesn't shy away from human suffering. Sometimes I think it's just as interesting to look in the scriptures and note what is there than what is not. These writers of the biblical text, they didn't have to include all of these stories, and yet there they are, these stories full of People who are facing all variety of suffering. Some suffering that comes because of tragedy or loss. Others that come because of the consequences of some personal choice or action. Other people who are experiencing suffering that has absolutely no explanation. See Job. Right Over and over we encounter these stories of people who are faced with what we know all too well. Pain and despair, and loneliness, and questioning. And similar to us, within those stories, we discover that no two people seem to deal with suffering in the same way. Some people cry out to God and lament, or anger, or both. Other people just stew quietly. Still others gnash their teeth and put on sackcloth. And Paul and the Roman Christians in our passage today are no exception. They are part of that group of stories of human suffering. Right by this point in Paul's missionary life, he has been rejected and arrested and run out of town more times than he can probably count. Likewise, these Roman Christians who are reading this letter that he is writing to them are people who have just returned literally in just the previous years or months returned from this extended exile where they had been sent out of Rome. They had been sent out to live in places that were not their home because of the wishes of the Roman emperor Claudius. And now they have come back and they're reading this letter and yet they're going out of the doors of their church and they're still facing the reality that the home that they had prior to that exile is no longer their home. That that job which they left all those years ago, it ain't there anymore. Right? These are people reading this letter who really have absolutely no assurances about what tomorrow will bring. These are people who know suffering. And so we expect Paul to write a letter to these Christians at least I expect Paul to write a letter to these Christians that might sound a little bit more peppy in its nature, right? Remember Paul, this is a little backstory. Again, I'm planting seeds for Bible trivia if this comes up at the end of the month. (laughs) 
Right? Paul has been on these missionary journeys, and he is seeking to share the gospel and convert people to the Christian faith, but he's also trying to raise money. He's trying to raise money for the church back in Jerusalem, and he's about to take some money back to the church in Jerusalem, and any good fundraiser out there knows you want to paint a rosy picture normally when you're talking to your audience, right? We half expect Paul to write to the Roman Christians and say, hold your chins up, guys, it's all right. Better days right around the corner. Don't worry about that, you know, lack of home, the job, that whole thing will come together. Right? It would make sense for Paul to write a letter like that, but what does he actually do? Paul does the opposite. Instead of trying to throw up some shade, some smoke and mirrors, Paul turns the attention of the Roman Christians straight to the suffering that they are living with. Paul is trying to tell the church that in Jesus Christ, nothing is ever quite as it seems. In fact, in Jesus Christ, Paul wants them to remember God has taken everything and turned it on its head. Christian hope, he is saying to them, it's not found in power or privilege or wealth or comfort. Right? Anyone here ever tried to purchase hope with the purchase of a new car or a new house or a new toy? Did it work out? Probably not. It's all shiny and new for a little while, and then we find ourselves, huh, same old me, same old reality. Right? Paul's telling them that's not where you find hope. If you want to find hope, he says, there's really only one place you need to look. The place that we find hope, according to Paul, is on the cross. Because it is on the cross that we encounter a God who knows the depths of our suffering. We encounter a God who has felt all the pain that we feel. It is on the cross that we meet a God who knows what it is to despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet Paul says that's not where it ends. Because in finding a God on a cross, we also find a God whose love never is revoked. We find a God who will love us even in our despair. A God who will love us even to the point of death. You know, Megan, who I was talking about, married to Evan, is an incredible uh, woman of faith. She's an incredible writer, too. I always pray and hope that one day her writing will get published because it really is remarkable. And one of the ways that she has lived this journey that her and Evan have shared these past five years is by writing. And she wrote something a year after their diagnosis or thereabouts. And it's this uh, piece that I've hung on to ever since. I want to read you just a part of it. Here's what Megan writes She says, listen, I don't know. I really don't know. Easy answers do nothing for these beyond words experiences that my family has been living. The motives behind it, the greater plan, how it all works out, I have no tropes for that, she says. But I do know that it is something else altogether to be in hell, whether by your own doing or not, and to find God there with you. It's not until you get to that place, she says, that you never wanted to be, that you see even still 
Even still, God is there. Oh, thank God, she writes. Because what if, what if we went on really believing in a God that just shows up for our tea parties and our pep rallies? Right? What if God only existed in that magical privileged land of normal and functioning and the rest of us had to crawl our way there in order to find him? Oh, thank God, she writes. Thank God that pain has ripped through us and made us human. Did not God die for humanity? It is not my shame, she says then, to be among the humans, to be on the inconsolably weak end of my humanity and to be loved there. Thank God for eyes that find God in dirt and blood, in chemo drips and tear-stained pillows, inside the police tape and on the refugee-filled boats. Thank God for eyes, in other words, I hear her saying, that find God even in our suffering. Heaven can coexist, she concludes, right where heaven doesn't belong. Kind of like when it was wailing in a feed trough, huh? I'm on to you, God, she says. I'm on to you. Paul does not tell us that we have to be hopeful in our suffering. If you have ever or if you are in a place of suffering, is it any help when someone says, it'll be okay, have some hope? Paul doesn't tell us we have to be hopeful in our suffering, right? He says suffering produces hope. There's no time frame there. He says suffering produces hope. In other words, he says when we have hope, what it really means is that we are allowing for the possibility that even in the fire of our despair, new life is being forged. Even out there at the edge of the cliff, when we cling to the last strand on the end of the rope in those places where there are no easy answers, even out there when we discover that yet we have not gone over the cliff and we are still somehow, even by the most fragile strand of thread, connected to God's green earth. It is there that we discover our deepest and truest hope. Because it is there that we meet a God. A God who does not abandon us. And not only that, Paul says, but we also boast in our sufferings. Because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. I think what Paul is writing to the church in Rome is not unlike what Megan is writing to all of us. I think Paul is trying to tell them what he has discovered to be true, which is that we're on to what God's up to. Because what God's up to is working life, life, even at the end of our ropes. 
Friends, for a gospel as powerful as that, for love as wide as that, and for mercy that is lifted up for us even now, we give thanks and we say thanks be to God. Amen.